except death and taxes. I'm sure you've heard that before. While I believe that there's some truth to that statement, I also believe that ultimately, Benjamin Franklin was wrong. I can think of something else that's certain in this life for all people, and it's something that I absolutely hate. I don't like death. Certainly don't like taxes. But this is something that I don't like even more. The saddest reality of this life is that all people sin. Including you, including me, all people sin. And Scripture teaches us that. We can just go to one verse to establish the validity of that claim. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whenever we read that verse, or whenever we read verses like that one, maybe we're tempted to only think about it in a very broad way. All people sin throughout all time. This is a timeless and a universal truth for all people. All people fall short of God's glory, and that's certainly the case. But this morning, I want you to get a little bit more specific with me. This morning, I want you to get a little bit more personal with me. If all people have sinned, you know what that means? That means that I've sinned. If all people have fallen short of God's glory, that means that you have fallen short of God's glory. Whenever we read verses like this one in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, that's not just about everybody else. That's not just about people that we meet on a daily basis. That's not just talking about the world as a collective whole. It's talking about you and me as individuals. We have all done things. We have all said things. We have all thought things that are contrary to God's will for our lives. Things that Scripture calls sin. And something that we all need to recognize. So the question that I want us to think about this morning is one that I believe to be an important one. How should we respond to our sin? All people sin. All people fall short of God's glory. That includes you. That includes me. How should we react whenever we do? Whenever we do sin. Whenever we do something or we say something or we think something that is contrary to God's will. Something that breaks His law. Something that breaks His heart. How should we respond? Let's look at a few different options together. Maybe we should just hide it. It's what we oftentimes try to do, isn't it? Whenever we sin, whenever we do something that is contrary to what God teaches us in the pages of this book, we try to slip it under the rug. We put it in the closet and close the door and pretend to the best of our ability like it's not there. Sure, I recognize the sin in my life. I know that I do things and I say things that are contrary to God's will, but I'm going to make sure that I'm the only one who recognizes that. I'm going to hide my sin. I'm going to put it under the rug. I'm going to keep my sin a secret. How does the phrase go? Out of sight, out of mind? And maybe that's how we should treat our sin. Keep your sin out of sight. Hide your sin from God. Hide your sin from everybody else. And if you keep it out of sight, it's going to be out of your mind. You can pretend like it's not there. You can pretend like it doesn't exist. When we go over to Psalms 32 verses 3 and 4, we find that David tried that. 
How did it turn out for him? The Bible says, this is David talking about his life. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Can you see that David is going through a difficult time in his life there? Can you see that David is suffering in Psalms, the 32nd chapter? First, we find that he's suffering physically. The Bible says that his bones were wasting away. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He was suffering emotionally. He says, I'm groaning all day long. He's even suffering spiritually. He recognized that God's hand was heavy upon him both day and night. David is going through difficulty in life. David is suffering. He's suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually. What does it all go back to? For when I kept silent, when I tried to hide my sin, when I tried to cover it up, when I tried to keep it out of sight and out of mind, David says it brought great suffering into my life. And that's something we need to recognize. Whenever we try to hide our sin from God, when we try to hide and conceal our sin from other people, it's always going to cause suffering in our lives. But then somebody might look at that and say, well, it's not causing suffering in my life. I have a sin that I've been holding on to for some time now. A sin that I've been committing for several months or several years and nobody knows about it. It's not hurting anybody. And it sure hasn't caused any suffering in my life. I would invite you into the words of Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23 where God's speaking to the Israelites. He says, if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord. And watch this. Be sure... Your sin will find you out. You can hide your sin as much and as long as you want to, and it might work for a little while. But know that Scripture teaches your sin is going to find you out. Ultimately, there will be punishment. Ultimately, there will be consequences. Do you know why that is? You can hide your sin from other people and do a really good job at it. You can hide your sin from your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can hide your sin from your spouse, your family, your friends, your co-workers. But you can't hide your sin from God. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14 says that God will bring every deed into judgment, then more specific, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We can keep our sin out of sight and out of mind. It's not out of sight for God. It's not out of God's mind. When we stand before God, Solomon tells us, on the final day of judgment, He's going to bring into judgment every secret thing that we have done. You can't hide your sin from the Lord. How should we respond to our sin? Well, maybe we should try to minimize our sins. You know that sin in your life right now? That sin that you've been struggling with over the last few weeks or the last few months, it's really not that big of a deal, right? It's really not something that we need to make a big deal over. It's something that's small. At least you're not as bad as that person over there, right? Reminds me of whenever I was in high school. I decided that I was going to try to trim my eyebrows for the very first time. Probably should have read the article that you see up on the screen because it didn't go so well. Went to trim my eyebrow, put a huge gash, I mean a huge bald spot right down the middle of this one. So I immediately FaceTimed Leslie, 
And as soon as she answered, I asked her, showed her my eyebrow. Does it look as bad as I think it does? She got a smile on her face. Her voice got a little bit high. No, it looks fine. It doesn't look that bad. Well, I knew that it did. I knew she was just trying to minimize it. knew she was just trying to spare my feelings. So you know what I ended up doing? Perhaps you've noticed that my eyebrows are darker than my hair. You tell me why that is. I have no idea. I decided I was going to take a black Sharpie and just color it in. <laughs> and that worked well until I started sweating at cross-country practice. But the, yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, the point is, it's what we try to do with our sin, isn't it? We try to minimize our sin. You know, my sin's not really that big of a deal. Nobody knows about it. Like we said a few minutes ago, I'm keeping it a secret. It's not hurting anybody. And so I'm just going to continue to do it. We point our fingers at others. We compare ourselves to others. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. At least I'm not doing what that person is doing. At least I'm not caught up what they are caught up in. Well, again, I'd invite you into the words of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Think about our Lord Jesus, where Scripture says He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Consider for just a few moments what Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, was willing to do for us. He bore what? Sins. Whose sins? Our sins. As Jesus was hung on the tree, as Jesus was crucified, and He hung there suffocating to death for six hours, He was bearing the weight of the sins that we have committed and the sins that we continue to commit. Why did He do it? He did it so that we would die to sin. So that sin wouldn't be a part of us anymore. And so that we would live to righteousness. Jesus was wounded so that we can be healed. Jesus was wounded so that He can provide healing for our wounds, the wounds that we have caused to ourselves. When you take a look at Jesus hanging on the cross, it's impossible to minimize your sin. Now take a look at Jesus. Take a look at Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering and bleeding on your behalf, and then try to convince me that your sin is not a big deal. Look at the perfect Son of God taking your place, paying the price for your sin, and then compare yourself to somebody else and say, at least I'm not as bad as that person. When we see the perfect Son of God hanging on the cross and suffering on our behalf, it's not possible to minimize our sin. We come face to face with our sin. Our sin is maximized. We recognize the fact that our sin is such a big deal. That that's the price that Jesus had to pay. That's the suffering that Jesus had to go through. How should we respond to our sin? Well, maybe we should try to rationalize it. Sit there for just a second. And I'm going to explain to you why I'm committing this sin in my life. And when I'm done explaining it to you, if you'll think logically with me, it'll make sense to you. It'll make sense why I decided to disobey God and go against His Word. kind of reminds me of a kid who's sitting on the side of the swimming pool. His mom told him, don't jump in the swimming pool for 10 minutes. Let your sunscreen soak in. So the mom goes inside the house for about two seconds to get a glass of water. She comes back out and where's the little kid? In the swimming pool. 
Did you not hear what I just told you? I told you to not get in the swimming pool for 10 minutes. Why, why did you do that? Well, yeah, Mom, I, I heard what you said. But don't you know how hot it is out here? The water just looks so nice and so refreshing. And as I was looking at the water, I noticed that there was a diving stick, a pool noodle down at the bottom, and I realized I needed to get it. It's probably been in there for a long time. So I dove in here to get the pool noodle. And by the way, I don't plan on getting out of the water. I'm just going to have my face out of the water. My body's going to be below the water. So I don't really need sunscreen in the first place. I don't have a need for it to soak in. You see what the kid is doing? He disobeyed his mother but then tried to rationalize it. He tried to make it make sense in his mind. Came up with all of these excuses for why he did something wrong. Sometimes we do that, don't we? Well, everybody else is doing it. I might as well do it too. God will forgive me for it. I'll, I'll repent of it a little bit later. God will forgive me a little bit later. It's easier to ask for what? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Do we ever think down those tracks spiritually? I need to do what I want to while I'm young. Because the time's going to come when I'm not going to be able to do all of these things, and I can get serious about religion then. I can get serious about Jesus whenever that time comes. Can you see what we do? Let me tell you why my sin makes sense. Let me tell you why I should do this. Let me rationalize this and I'll make all of these excuses and whenever I'm done, you're going to agree with me. Yeah, that, that was probably the right thing to do even though Scripture clearly teaches that it's not. Well, you go over to Genesis, rather John chapter 15 and verse number 22. Jesus is talking about those who are not only going to kill Him, but those who are going to persecute His disciples. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have what? No excuse for their sin. Jesus says, I've come. I've spoken to them. They've heard My words. And as a result, they're not ignorant. And because they're not ignorant, whenever they commit these sins, they're going to be guilty. There's going to be no excuse for the sins that they commit because they know better. The same thing is true for us. We have the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, perfectly preserved for us in the Word of God. We know the Word of God. Every time we come together, we study and we think about a portion of it. Jesus has spoken to us, and so when we go against Him, we're guilty. When we go against Him, we have no excuse. There's no rationalizing my sin in the presence of Jesus. I'm responsible for my sin. You're responsible for your sin. When we go against Jesus' teachings, there's no way to make that make sense. There's no way to justify it. There's no excuse that can be made. How should we respond to our sin? Maybe we should just blame other people for it. That's, again, that's the way we oftentimes do it, don't we? Whenever we do something wrong, we look to blame others. We look to point the finger. Well, you don't know what that person said to me. If you would have heard what that person said to me, then you would have known why I did or said what I did or said to them. You didn't know how annoying they are. You don't know what they've done to me and my family. You don't know how they've tried to hurt me. And so when I ended up hurting them, it's actually their fault. They just got what was due. Remember what happened after the fall in Genesis, the third chapter? Whenever 
Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempts Eve to eat from the tree that God told them not to eat from. Then Eve eats of it. She takes some to Adam. He eats of it too. In that moment, they lose their innocence. Sin and death enters into the world. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day. He has a conversation with Adam, and ultimately he straight up asked him, why would you do what I told you not to do? Why did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat from? You remember how Adam responded? Genesis 3 and verse 12, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam disobeyed God. He ate of the tree, ate of the fruit that God commanded him not to eat from. But whose fault was it? Who did he blame? Well, God, this is all Eve's fault. She's the one who gave me the fruit in the first place. And if she wouldn't have given me the fruit, I wouldn't have eaten of it. But then if we want to take another step, God, this might be a little bit awkward for you. But this is not just Eve's fault. Actually, it's your fault. Because the woman gave me the fruit. Who gave me the woman? God, you're the one who gave me the woman. Adam is the one by his own free will who chose to eat of the fruit. He's the one who picked it up, brought it to his mouth, and took a bite out of it by his own choice. But it's not his fault. It's Eve's fault. It's God's fault. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate of it. It's what we do, isn't it? Whenever we do something wrong, we say something wrong, we do something contrary to God's will, we look to point the finger, we look to blame other people, but then we go to Scriptures like Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. Can you see where the responsibility is there? Whenever we stand before God on the final day of judgment, there's going to be no blaming other people for what we've done. Whenever we stand before God on the final day of judgment, there's going to be no pointing the finger and saying, well, God, I, I committed this sin because this person did this to me or I was going through this specific situation. There's going to be no passing the blame. The soul who sins shall die. I'm responsible for the sins that I commit. You're responsible for the sins that you commit. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in. When we sin against God, it is nobody's fault but our own. So we're still left with this question, how should we respond to our sin? I don't see any good options, do you? We can try to hide it, minimize it, rationalize it. We can blame others for it. But then when we go to Scripture, we find that those ideas simply don't work. That's not what God desires for us. I want to give you a fifth option that I think is more in line with Scripture. How should we respond to our sin? We don't hide it. We're not minimizing it. It's not that big of a deal. We're not rationalizing it. Let me tell you why it makes sense. We're not pointing our fingers at others. Instead, we are mourning over it. You remember what we read in our Scripture reading a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 5, verse number 4? Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. Whenever we read that verse, perhaps we are tempted to think about those who are going through great difficulty in life. 
When we read that verse, we think about those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, those who are mourning some kind of diagnosis, those who are mourning over the trials that are present in their lives. I'm not so sure that's what Jesus is talking about here. While there might be some application to that, when you look at the context of what Jesus is saying, remember what we talked about last week in Matthew 5 and verse 3. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are living in spiritual poverty. Those who recognize who they are without God. Here, Jesus is not talking about mourning over the loss of a loved one. He's talking about mourning over the sin that's present in our lives. I like the way John Stott puts it. don't agree with everything he says, but I agree with this. He says it's plain from the context that those who are promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers but the sorrow of repentance. And I believe that's exactly right. How should we respond to our sin? We should respond to our sin with mourning. It should absolutely break our hearts. When we look at the New Testament, we find that we should mourn over the sin that's present in the world. When you look at the sin that's present in the world, how do you oftentimes think about it? How do you oftentimes respond to it? I mean, throw out those hot-button issues like abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism. When you see those things going on, what kind of feelings do you have? We get mad, don't we? We get angry at what's going on in our world. We take a position of arrogance and we look down and I can't believe that people would do those kind of things. Look at those wicked and sinful people. They deserve what's coming to them. I want to suggest to you that when we are confronted with the sin in the world, it shouldn't be arrogance, it shouldn't be anger that we feel. Instead, it should be mourning. Look at Paul's words in Philippians 3 and verse 18. He says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Was Paul afraid to acknowledge that they are enemies of the cross of Christ? Was he afraid to acknowledge the fact that there are people who live in enmity against Jesus? Of course he wasn't afraid to point that out. Here he's talking about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not the first time he's talked about it. It's not going to be the last time that he talks about it. But what kind of attitude, what kind of feelings and emotions does he have when he considers those people? Oh, it's not anger. It's not arrogance. He says, let me tell you now, just like I've told you in the past, even with tears, there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Whenever we look at a world that is lost and dying without Jesus, it should absolutely break our hearts and bring tears to our eyes. We should respond in the same way that the psalmist did in Psalms 119 verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears Because people don't keep your law. When you see God's law being ignored, not just in the world, but in this community, do your eyes shed streams of tears? Do my eyes shed streams of tears? Maybe we don't mourn like we should. But it's not just about mourning over sin in the world. If we get a little bit closer, we should mourn over sin that's present in the church. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's addressing a sinful situation where a brother was sleeping with his father's wife. 
In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, after he names the situation, he goes on to talk about how they are responding to it, contrasted with how they should respond to it. And here's what he says. He says, and you are arrogant, puffed up, proud. Ought you not rather to mourn? When the church at Corinth saw this sinful situation, the Bible says they were arrogant, they were prideful, they were puffed up. You can hear their attitude. Oh, we're such a loving and a welcoming congregation that we can even accept this guy over here. You see him? He's sleeping with his father's wife and he's going to wait on the table today. He's an active participant in our congregation. They were proud about what he was doing and the situation that he was in. Paul says, are you kidding me? You're arrogant about this? Ought you not rather to mourn? The answer is, of course you should be mourning about this. When we see a brother or sister in Christ who is choosing to live in rebellion against God, it should break our hearts. So often we go out and gossip about them, don't we? We talk about them, we look down on them. I can't believe a Christian would decide to do something like that. This isn't a time for arrogance, Paul says. It's a time for mourning. We mourn over sin in the world. We mourn over sin in the church. But then we get a little bit closer, don't we? We talk about something that's a little bit harder where we mourn over the sin that's present in our lives. That's what Paul did. Romans 7 and verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this potty of death? Can you hear the grief that Paul has over the sin in his life? In James chapter 4, James addressing a group of Christians who were living in friendship with the world. And he points out that their friendship with the world is what? It's enmity with God. And so he tells them how to respond to it. James 4 and verse 9, Oh, don't feel so bad about yourselves. Don't feel guilty about the sin in your lives. Don't worry about it. Just keep on moving. Just keep on living life. It's not what he says. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and let your joy be turned into gloom. Paul, James is looking at this group of Christians and he's looking at us today and he tells us we should be absolutely broken hearted over the sin that's present in our lives. And so we go back to this question, how should we respond to our sin? And we see a lot of options that aren't appropriate. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to minimize it or rationalize it. We're not going to blame others for it. But according to what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 4, we're going to mourn over it. Our sin has to be allowed to break our hearts to bring tears to our eyes. When was the last time you actually did that? When was the last time that you looked out at a lost and dying world and you couldn't help but cry? Because those are people living without Jesus. Those are people who are walking down a path that is directed towards a devil's hell. Do we care? Do we mourn over that? When was the last time that you looked at a brother or sister in Christ, someone who according to John 13, you love just like Jesus loves you, and you see them living in rebellion to God, and it breaks your heart. And it causes you to mourn. It causes you to weep. When was the last time that you took a look in the mirror? When was the last time you took a look at your own life, you took a look at your own heart, and it broke your heart? Because you saw something that shouldn't be there. We wonder why we struggle with sin. We wonder why we struggle to remove the sin in our lives. We, str- we wonder why repentance is such a hard thing. 
And maybe a part of it is that we don't mourn like we should. We are not broken up. We are not broken hearted over the sin that's present in our lives. We have to allow our hearts to be broken with what breaks God's heart. So where's the blessing? What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn. Where's the blessing in mourning? Whenever I'm broken over my sin and I have my head in my hands and tears are streaming down my face because there's something in my life that God doesn't want to be there and I'm experiencing that mourning. Where's the happiness in that? Because that's what we're talking about in this series. How we can experience true happiness in life. Happiness and mourning don't usually go together. So where is it in this circumstance? Well again, as we close, take a look at Matthew 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's the blessing. Here's where the true happiness comes from. They shall be comforted. Are you broken over your sin this morning? Are you mourning over your sin this morning? Here's the blessing of that. You can be comforted. Whenever we are mourning over the sin that's present in our lives, God offers to us the most comforting promise that could ever be heard. I will forgive. Those who mourn over their sin are the ones who are comforted by the indescribable and unimaginable mercy, grace, and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Maybe you are mourning over your sin this morning, confronted with this text, confronted with the sin in your life, and you're thinking, I'd like to make a change. This isn't where I would like to be. You can be comforted. Make the decision to become a Christian. If you are a Christian and your life is not reflecting that, allow yourself to be broken over it and come to the one who can mend you, the one who can mend the brokenness. We'd love to help you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you to study with you. Anything that we can do, we'd love to help as together we stand and sing our song of invitation.